Hello and welcome to the Unfuck Your Biz podcast, a show for creatives to encourage and inspire through actionable legal, tax, money, and business topics. I'm Braden Drake, an author, lawyer, tax pro, and educator. If you are ready to get your legal and tax shit legit, you are in the right place. But before we fully dive in, here is a quick word from my sponsors. This episode is brought to you by my free training, The Three Legal and Tax Mistakes Made by New and Experienced Business Owners and How You Can Avoid Them. Here's the thing. There's a few key things we've all got to do to make sure we unfuck our biz. I've seen all the mistakes and I know how to help you get past them. So here's what I want you to do. Go to www.unfuckyourbiz.com, sign up for the free training, watch it, and do at least one of the homework assignments I share in the masterclass. Promise? Okay, now let's dive into the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 88 of the Unfuck Your Biz podcast. As always, this is your host, Brayden, and today I'm very excited because we are going to be chatting all things intellectual property 101 with my good friend kelly kelly is the owner of the keller law firm and she also just launched the trademark girl podcast so search for that go check it out it's going to be really awesome i'm positive of it so with that intro welcome kelly how's it going i'm doing great thanks so much for having me this is so fun we've been talking about doing this forever so it's great that it's already here Yes, super, super exciting. So before we get started, let's chat a little bit more about your background. So obviously, I well, I intro you as an IP expert, but you're a trademark attorney, more particularly, how long have you been working on trademarks? I have been in the trademark field for 24 years, uh, half of them as a practicing attorney, and then the other half of them working for a retired law professor, and then working in a law firm by day and going to law school at night. So I've been in the academic perspective, I've been in the business side, and then in the big law, and then in the in the small solo law firm space. Nice. So you guys, um, by the way, a little bit of background. For like a hot second in my law firm, I thought I was going to try to do trademarks. Wasn't really my jam. So now I refer all of my clients to Kelly and my students as well. And Kelly is also my trademark attorney. So very glad that we met. Um, We actually met back in uh, Amy Porterfield's course, Digital Course Academy, which was a little over a year ago, feels longer, but you're also teaching now, aren't you, Kelly? I am. I am an adjunct professor of law at Weidner University School of Law in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and I teach trademark and copyright there, and it's an absolute blast. I love every bit of it. Okay. I was like, we'll have to talk more about that at some point. Cause I always thought it would be fun to be an adjunct professor, but I also feel like I'm not serious enough to be teaching people. Well, at the end of the day, the thing is it was an eight 15 in the morning class. And I'm like, if I just wear bright clothes and have lots of coffee, and <laughs> everybody, if I'm excited, they'll be excited. But you know, at the end of the day, if you're super passionate and you know what you're talking about, people will connect and they won't forget what you have to say. And I had an amazing class. They always showed up and we just stayed really engaged because I was happy and I was having fun. So I think you would be an absolutely phenomenal professor. Well, I'm tossing my hair right now. People can't see that, but thank you so much. Yeah, one of my, so little off topic, you guys, but when I was in law school, I always felt like we needed more practical instructions from people who are not just consumed in academia. 
and people like Kelly can give us really practical tips. And the great thing is, is although I know Kelly probably makes a fabulous law school professor, I know that she also is going to be able to explain these topics to all of you listeners who did not go to law school. So we're going to keep it super simple. And with that in mind, I'm going to start with probably the most, well, maybe not basic, probably a difficult question because it is so broad. But my first question for you, Kelly, is what actually is intellectual property? Well, the best place to start is at the beginning, right? (laughs) So we all get on the same page. So here's the deal. Intellectual property, let's break it down. Intellectual meaning it's a product of the mind. Property, which is something that you can buy and sell or that you can trade and that the law recognizes as a thing of value. So if you put those things together, we have basically knowledge and ideas. We have experience, all these intangible things in our head for which the law provides protection. So let's sort of step that back a minute. If you think about property and the big picture, we really have like three types of property. There's real property, personal property, and intellectual. Bottom line, what that means, real property is real estate. It's essentially where something is fixed to the ground or it's the land or it's a building on the land. If it's a house, it's a barn, a farm. I live in Pennsylvania, so we have lots of (laughs) barns, barns and farms, right? Whatever that is. So when you buy and sell it, you transfer the title on a piece of paper, you give somebody the keys, they come in and then you have to leave and you can't come back onto it. So you literally physically, it doesn't move, but you go in and somebody else comes out. So that's real estate, real property. Then we have personal property and personal property is anything that moves. So whether it's a pen, it's an iPhone, it's a car, a computer, a chair, furniture, you name it, anything that moves versus real estate, which is like I said, it's fixed. It doesn't actually move. Well, personal property moves sort of in commerce where, hey, uh, Braden, I want to sell you my pen. And you're like, cool, thanks. And then, you know, you give me a buck, I give you the pen. Well, and at that point, I don't have the pen anymore. You have all of it, but I don't have any of it. And I'm like, hey, can I have that back? And then you give it back to me. And at that point, I have all of the pen. You don't have any more of the pen. So it moves by actually physically moving it from person to person, but just as if in real property, you don't have the legal right to come onto the land or into that building anymore. With personal property, it's the same thing. Once I have possession of it, you can't come get it anymore. Well, then we have this thing called intellectual property. So thinking in that same vein, if I have knowledge and ideas that have value, so I have a secret recipe, um, it's a secret sauce. Uh, think about like the um, seasonings for Kentucky Fried Chicken. That's a, you know, a, what they call it. It's a secret sauce. It's sort of the thing that makes them different or special. The Coca-Cola formula. If I have one of those, you know, fancy ideas that has a lot of value and I tell it to you and you receive it, that's great. But when I want you to give it back to me or I want you to sell it back to me, the problem is you like can't unknow what you know. So I've given you something of value, just like when I gave you my pen or when I sold you my house, but you can't unknow what you know. I don't want you to give it to anybody else. And quite frankly, I don't even want you to have it anymore because I don't want you to work for me anymore. So the only way that we can deal with how do we actually stop you from disclosing that is by building a legal wall around it. So when we actually take a legal wall and put it around certain ideas that is actually what we call intellectual 
property. And then it's something that you can buy and sell. You can incorporate it into a product or a service. But it's only that certain knowledge and ideas for which the law recognizes that they have specific value. It's not just every random idea. But that's what it is in terms of sort of what property is generally. So that's how we have to think about it. It's basically our ideas that matter and that the law recognizes. Okay, that's awesome. I love that breakdown because I've never heard anyone explain personal property as things that move before. And I think that really helps set up the, uh, like kind of the analogy of the walls around the intellectual property. So that's awesome. What I want to talk about next is we have, I always talk about like buckets as opposed to categories, like buckets for some reason is one of my favorite words, but let's talk about the different buckets of intellectual property. So I always think about trademark, copyright, patent. Those are the three big ones. I know there's like a couple of nuances, smaller ones, but can you kind of explain to us the difference between those? You got it. And um, when we talk about buckets, sort of traditionally, the other bucket we would talk about are trade secrets. I'll mention those briefly, but the top three are patents, trademarks, and copyrights. Here's how they're different, is they're different in the way, in what they do and how they function. So a patent is actually a grant from the government that says, hey, inventor, if you tell us everything about your invention, the best way to do it, the best way to make it, et cetera, in exchange for you disclosing that, we're gonna give you the right to make it, use it, and sell it exclusively for 20 years from the date you file the application. So a patent grant is for something that is useful. It is something that's functional. It's new, but it's an invention. And an invention is something that's never been done before. You literally invented it but it only covers things that are useful and functional. On the co a copyright, on the other hand, is not for anything that is useful or functional, but it is for an original work of authorship that's essentially like a creative work. In fact, we don't want it to be functional because if it's functional, it, doesn't, it falls back into the patent bucket. So anything that works is like patents. So on the copyright side, when I say an original work of authorship, what does that mean? Original in this sense means that you made it up on your own and you didn't borrow from anybody else. And a work of authorship, author in the copyright world means creator. So a photographer, a blogger, a podcaster, a painter, whatever, designer, it all just is the same thing, not just author of like a book. So we just use that word generally speaking. But a a work of authorship, so that would be any creative idea that's expressed in a tangible medium. What does that mean? You have to put pen to paper or you have to capture it online, some type of, some type of tangible medium because if we ha don't have it captured, we can't measure it. So we don't know what it is and I, you can't ask somebody not to use something if they don't even know what it is. <laughs> so the important thing about copyrights is it's gonna protect your original blogs your designs, your courses, your, your landing pages, all of the content and any of your, um, you know, your membership sites, your books that you write, any of those types of things, uh, all of your photographs, if they're original, um, that's what the copyright protects. And the thing that's important is to always remember that ideas themselves are never protectable because I can't stop you from independently thinking up the same thing that I think up. 
you know, we're on opposite coasts. We're on different time zones. I have no idea if you're thinking the same thing and we have the same great idea and, you know, kind of, you know, create this infographic and they look really similar. I mean, you can't stop that. So, so since I can't stop somebody from sort of thinking up the same thing as me, the only thing I can stop them doing is from copying my exact expression of it. So that's always the question of, you know, when can I copy it? When can I not? Is it enough? Is it not enough? It just can't be a copy of whatever you've expressed. So when somebody's like, well, that's my idea. That's great. Get to work and get it expressed <laughs> in a way that other people who see it, they'll know what they can't copy. So that's copyright. So patents are for useful things like bicycles and motors and even like chemical compounds, like the stuff that goes in a pill, like all that, you know, the chemical formulas, whatever that go in pills and medicines. Then trademarks are your other bucket and they basically are like the brand name for the useful things and for the copyrighted works that, that we want to sell. Trademarks are essentially like a badge of origin. What they say is, this is the name under which I'm offering this product or service. We technically call them a source identifier, meaning it tells us the source of the product, even though it's like, if we think about like Tylenol, when you see the word Tylenol, you trust the source. You're like, I don't necessarily know the name of the pharmaceutical company, but I trust it. So the trademark actually is the visual representation of a consumer's goodwill and trust in a product or service. Those are your three big buckets. Uh, let me just mention quickly, trade secrets are sort of the fourth bucket. They're a little different from the other three because the other three have value when you make them available to the public. I mean, if you've got a great idea for a book and you write it down and you keep it under your mattress, it's like <laughs> not gonna help anybody, right? Because it, it, it doesn't have value until people buy it or want to consume it. Trademarks, the whole point is for things that you sell and you know, patents, same thing. Trade secrets have value because it's information that's kept secret and it's valuable because it's kept secret. So things like business secrets, like a Coca-Cola formula or maybe a customer list or maybe an email list if you spent lots and lots of time you know, creating it. So information that if somebody else were to take it would actually hurt you, that's stuff that you can protect as a trade secret. You get to decide if it's a trade secret or not it's not, there's not like the law doesn't say, well, only these things are trade secrets, but you have a responsibility, A, to keep it secret and to take reasonable measures to do so. So if you don't ever put passwords on your stuff and you just give stuff away without, you know, non-disclosure agreements and you talk to anybody willy nilly and then you're like, hey, they stole my idea. It's like, well, you fool, you didn't try to protect it. So interesting. there's sort of your, your big picture, patents cover inventions, copyrights cover, creative works, trademarks are the brand names that you sell the inventions and the creative works under and trade secrets is your secret sauce. So quick recap for everyone. I'm sure like I'm sitting in my office desk right now. So as you're, I can't help my mind tends to wonder as you're explaining all these things, I see intellectual property all around me. And I'm sure if people are in their cars, they see it. If they're at their home office, they see it. But just for example, like I'm sitting in front of my podcast mic, I'm sure there's something that's been patented in there at some point in time. Right across from me on the wall is my Dyson. And I know that guy has a shit ton of patents. I have right <laughs> in front of me, I have my Apple mouse. So I see the Apple logo, which I know is trademarked. And for some people, like 
my dad, for instance, he'd probably see that Apple logo and his immediate thought would be, I spent too much money on that. Whereas mine, you know, the Apple logo tells me that it's sleek and minimal and functional. So the trademark tells us a lot about the brand, right? And then for copyright, I have a blog open on my computer. I have my book manuscript beside me. So I see this kind of everywhere. What I want to kind of dive into is most of my audience, they're creatives, they're wedding professionals, event people, graphic designers. So patents probably not going to be relevant unless they go into another business. Trade right. secret, not so much. So I want to dive specifically into trademark and copyright. And we're going to talk about trademark first. And also heads up for everyone, Kelly and I are going to do another episode after this on the actual process of filing a trademark. Today's episode is really just like on the differences and when you would want to get one. So key question, I'm sure you get this all the time. I know I do. When is it time to file a trademark for your business? So there's the answer everybody thinks I'm going to give. And then there's the answer that I'm going to give. Okay. <laughs> and I think a lot of times people who are asking that question are also thinking, if I may, you know, suppose, when do, is, is what I have, like, have enough value to merit me undertaking the expense of going and filing a trademark? So there's, there's really two answers. The first one, it's never too early because trademark rights arise from use in commerce. When you actually start to, like when Apple puts their Apple logo on an iPhone, on a mouse, on a Mac, whatever, and they sell it and people see it, they're getting that the consumers are making an association with that actual logo. That's actually the trademark right being created. So when you launch your blog and you have your blog under a certain name, you know, then that becomes the trademark of the blog. You don't have to do anything. You start to get those rights. But here's the rub. Those rights are only enforceable in the geographic area where you're using it. So back in the old days, it'd be like, okay, you open up a store in a strip mall, you know, like a jewelry store and you start selling jewelry and then you might have rights in your little town. But now that we're online, when you start selling something and you start promoting it, even if you actually are marketing to a local clientele, if you ship stuff outside of your state or you are attracting other people to come in from outside of your small area, then you're starting to expand those rights, but you're, you're, you have a broader reach, but your rights are still limited to that area where you've actually had transactions. But when you file an application with the trademark office, all of a sudden those little geographic rights, boom, overnight, they become national rights. So you don't have to be doing business throughout the whole country, but you get them. And the deal is like, if you have, you know, you're, you know, running your, you know, coaching business in California and there's somebody else running their coaching business in, you know, Georgia, they may be called the same thing. And if it's in-person coaching, like nobody's going to get confused. But when you start promoting it online, people are going to get confused. So if you're the California person, you're like, well, I'm not working. I don't have clients in Georgia. But people in Georgia can still find you. So it's important that you expand your rights as early as you possibly can. Because if you plan to grow your business in the, in, in the internet age, there is no sort of staying super local. So the one answer is file as early as you can 
and early as you can afford it. Let me answer, put one other piece into this. In the trademark application process, they have a special type of application, which you can file based on your intention to use a mark in the future. So if you're not actually selling anything yet or offering something, you know, even if it's not, you know, for money, um, technically, but just as an aside, you don't just to be for something to be in use doesn't mean you have to exchange money. Like it's, you can give things away. It doesn't have to be an actual financial transaction. But here's the thing is that if you're like, you know what, I'm really working on getting this out. I have this course or I have this program or, you know what, I've got an Etsy store and I've got a bunch of stuff that I want to sell under a particular name. Then you can file a trademark based on your intention to use that mark. And that way you're essentially reserving it nationwide while you're getting your ducks in a row. So the way I answer that question is how much value do you create in your trademark by filing an application early, ensuring that nobody else in the country can create a competitive, can use that trademark or a similar trademark for a competitive product. So I say file early and file often. If you can't afford it, then I think you need to consider how quickly can you make enough money to actually merit having, um, you know, are you actually making enough money in your business to actually have a business or are you doing just something as a hobby? And I don't, I, I don't mean to be kind of harsh about that, but at the end of the day, if you're going to own a business, protecting your name throughout the entire country probably makes sense. So I, I'll, I'll, I'll raise an objection to that because I think it'll be a good discussion, but let's start with, I'll st start with kind of this. Whenever people ask me if they should file a trademark as a non-expert in intellectual property, my kind of just throwaway answer is if you would be pissed if someone took your name and you had a rebrand overnight, then it's time for you to file a trademark because basically that's when you're putting your own value in your business name. So if someone actually were to come back and say, you know what, Brayden, like I have this name, but I'm not really tied to it. I don't really ever plan on expanding my floral design business, wedding planning business outside of the county of San Diego. What would you tell that person? Should they still get a trademark or not really something they need to worry about? I would tell them to just ask the separate question. It, and I agree with you because I say the same thing. And when I'm, when I'm saying, should you file a trademark, this is assuming you actually want to build a business around it and you want to market it online. Got it. Uh, but what I would say is if somebody else, somewhere else in the country gets a trademark and they're able to market everywhere, including where you are and you have to stop them. And if you're okay with that, then you don't need to file a trademark if you don't really care. I have a three-part test on whether or not you should file any piece of intellectual property. So on a trademark, the first question is, is it part of your commercial advantage? If you're just like, you know what, I kind of have it, I'm not really sure. It's not part of your like distinction in the marketplace because you're not even like putting anything out there in a way that you're trying to build brand value. So we're not even at the trademark conversation yet. The second thing is, does it have commercial value? So it's part of what makes you different and it's also part of what helps you make money. If it helps you make money, then you're like, okay, if it's just something that's like just for fun, whatever, then who really cares? You know, because you're not trying to build any value around it. And then the third is really where the rubber meets the road. Are you going to do anything about it if somebody steals from you? Are you actually going to send them a letter and be like, hey, man, that's not cool. You can't do that. 
or are you going to cower and be like, I'm so afraid. I can't do that. That's so mean. If you're not going to enforce it, then what's the point in the first place? But you don't have to think about legal enforcement as mean. It's no different if somebody were to come up to your front door, pick the lock and come in without your permission. You wouldn't think for a minute to be aggressive about getting them out. So you should feel the same way about your trademark. Yeah, and I've helped people just send like very polite emails to say, hey, like that's my intellectual property. And most of the time, the response they get is from new business owners and it's, you know, something to the effect of, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I had no idea. Right. That's right. what I mean. It's like pretty simple. But I think the other thing I want to mention here, because as a trademark lawyer, I can never give just a simple answer, is the <laughs> other thing is this. If you're like, hey, you know, I'm not really sure. I don't know if I really want to invest in it. The only thing you want to do is to make sure that as you're tinkering around that you're not infringing on someone else's mark. So you're playing around with your name and you're just thinking about it. That's all well and good, but also make sure that you can at least play around with it, even in, you know, the tiny space that you're in. Okay. I like that. And I was going to ask you how much it typically costs to file a trademark, but that'll tie really well into our next episode. So I'm going to leave everyone on the hook and tell them they have to listen to the next one to get the answer to that to that key question. So Perfect. awesome. So one of the one of the kind of nuances I pulled out of everything you just said, Kelly, and I think this will help people really break it down is there's a difference between wanting to build a business and wanting to build a brand. Those mm -hmm. are those can be mutually exclusive things. So to give you an example, um, I now have Unfuck Your Biz. That's the name of my podcast. It's the name of my book that'll be coming out soon. Unfuck Your Biz will become its own brand. That is my intellectual property. I have a framework that I want to protect. So Kelly filed that trademark for me. We can talk more about that later. Um, but just because we're saying that, um, I guess what I'm getting at is you don't have to want to build a brand in order to still be a serious business owner in your own right. They're kind of two different things that you need to look at. Uh, as you assess whether you need a trademark in your business? Um, I think you're right, but I will, I will disagree with you in this sense. It's a difference between are you building a brand of one? Or are, you build, are you building a small brand or are you building a big brand? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, if you're just yourself and you're out there and you're like, hey, you know, I'm Kelly Keller coaching, then Kelly Keller, it's a personal brand because nobody's doing business with me personally. Nobody knows me. They don't live with me. They don't know me. They don't know anything about my childhood. They're not my friend. They're doing business with my reputation. And my reputation is the brand. So you are building a brand. It's just a question of, are you building a brand that will offer more than one product or service? Or are you staying in a super niche lane with a small product offering, even a single product offering? So what's the difference between those two things? It's not. It's just... You mean in terms of a, 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 I'm sorry, let me re answer your question or re ask your question, excuse me. Yeah, what? Well, so you, you mentioned there's a difference if you're going to have multiple product offerings versus just one. How does that play into trademark? Oh, okay. So if you're going to do that, so if we think about your, um, your business name, so your house mark, so unfuck your biz, right? It, if you think about that, like, like it's like the name of the house. We call them house marks, literally. They're almost like an umbrella. It's the name of your house. But then you come into the house and you're like, ooh, what's this all about? And then you go into the right door and then you'll see, oh, maybe there's another product in there and it has a different name. 
think of it like Starbucks. Like you go into the Starbucks house and you walk in and you're like, I want a Frappuccino. So I'm going to go over to the right. And mm -hmm. then you're going to be like, I want something different. So I'm going to go over here and I'm going to get a Tazo tea. So what happens is if you're going to build a brand that has a lot of products or services, you may have what we call sub-brands. So there are names of specific products or services that are offered under the overarching brand. And so people, and the only reason why they buy the new product or service is because it's associated with the one they recognize. Got it. Okay. Does Frappuccino have a trademark? Yes. That's, that's funny. I guess yeah. that actually makes sense because... I guess Starbucks is so pervasive that I actually, for a long time, I thought a Frappuccino was a thing. And then you go to other coffee shops and they're like, well, that's a Starbucks. I mean, we can make that, but that's like, it's, it's like it's a blizzard. It's like a McFlurry coffee. or like yes. a blizzard, like those kind of things. That's why it's not um, able to be used anywhere else, only there. And right. I will say this, the other thing, when you're like a thing, so trademarks are adjectives, they're not nouns. So it's like, it's a Frappuccino blended coffee drink. Uh -huh. It's not... A frappuccino because then that would be like a that would be a noun it would be a thing okay so all right awesome so lots to lots to think about and consider there with trademarks and trademarks do tend to be what i'm asked about most often with regard to intellectual property but i don't want to conclude this podcast without at least briefly discussing copyrights okay and for me, I know, um, because Kelly and I are both in the online space. So we both work with a lot of online. Actually, Kelly, you work with a lot more online business owners than I do. Most of my clients and students are service-based business owners. Mm -hmm. So when I think of copyright, I, of course, think about copywriting online courses. But for my students, really the key example I always go to is copyright of photographs because I work with a lot of photographers. So let's start there. And I want to ask you, if you're a photographer, when would you actually want to go through the steps to copyright your photos? So it's a really good question. Everybody pretty much knows, or at least has heard at some point that you don't have to do anything to get a copyright. All you have to do is take the picture. So the minute you actually are the author that creates that authorship, meaning the photographer snapping the picture, you own the copyright in that picture. You already own it. What does that mean? I digress. What that means is that you get a, a, like a little bundle of rights. Think of them like a little bundle of cinnamon sticks you get at the holidays. Somebody gives that with you like with a little packet of cider. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's five little cinnamon sticks. And what those are that little bundle is the five copyright rights. And what they are, it means you have the exclusive right, meaning you can exclude others from copying something, um, distributing something or, you know, selling it from making a derivative work. So that's like taking like a script and turning it into a movie, like a book to a script or screenplay, like to a movie from publicly performing something like a concert or publicly displaying something like, you know, like hanging your photographs in a coffee shop, you know, for sale. So what happens is you get those five rights the minute you create it, but you cannot sue anybody. You cannot go to court and you cannot legally enforce those copyrights if you don't register them with the copyright office. It's essentially your ticket to court. It's like saying, hey, listen, I need the title. I actually need the title to my copyright, um, even though you have it. So it's not that photographers want to go around suing people, but it's a great deterrent knowing that you can. 
And it's also the only way that you're ever going to be able to get any type of money damages ordered by a court. So if you want the chance to enforce it, you should register it. If you don't care about that part, no problem. Okay, so I'm actually, I'm gonna use a hypothetical here. So just literally just today, I was scrolling through Facebook like I always do, and I saw a wedding photographer who posted that a popular wedding publication had taken one of her photos and published mm -hmm. it without her permission. This happens all the time. I actually always thought, Kelly, that you could still send a cease and desist and go to court without registering the copyright. You just couldn't get attorney's fees and then it was gonna be harder to enforce. Is that not the case? That is not the case. And the US Supreme Court clarified that for us last fall. Okay. Um, the thing is this, you can send a cease and desist letter and you can work out any private arrangement anytime you want. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. But copyright law is a federal law. It's not a state law. So you can only go to federal court and you cannot file in federal court without a registered copyright. Now it used to be in some places in the country, you could file with a pending application, but no longer, you must have it fully registered in order to even file. In lawyer speak, you don't have jurisdiction. Right. You so don't get if permission. Someone, if someone takes your photo and publishes it, can you then file a copyright and then sue them after it yes, gets approved? You can. What that does though, is it just changes the nature of what we call damages. So damages is essentially what's the penalty that a court would assess on the person who in, you know, stole your stuff. So when it comes to damages, there's always two types. Um, essentially, one is uh, basically the court saying, stop doing it. So they call that an injunction. You have to stop doing that. So it's the slap on the wrist. The other one is what money damages. So you got to pay a certain amount of money. Well, if you file your application after an infringement begins, then the only money damages you can get awarded is lost profits. Like it's actual damages. Like you have to prove on paper you lost money. If you file the application before an infringement begins or within 90 days of first publishing it, then you actually can get an automatic, uh, automatic money award between like 750 and like 30,000 bucks automatically without proving any financial harm. So it starts to get into the weeds when, if you get into an, an enforcement issue. So the answer is yes, you can always register your work. It's just the question of what, what damages are available. So I can tell you as a lawyer, when one of my clients is accused of copyright infringement, what's the first thing I want to know? If is it, it registered? Right. If it's not registered, what am I going to say to my client? Go about your day, stop doing it. I'll take care of the rest. Got it. They don't have a lot of teeth. Okay. So in the next podcast, we're going to talk about the trademark process because I know that's like a whole conversation, mm -hmm. but I want to wrap up this conversation with just discussing a little bit about the copyright process because I know that it's simpler, not quite as complex, and it's, you know, a little less overwhelming than trademark. So one thing I would love for you to touch on, and normally I would kind of like ask you a leading question to get to this, but I don't know a great leading question. Also, I'll just say that I know I know that you can file copyrights for a collection of photos. Mm -hmm. So I want to kind of talk about that. And then also um, the costs associated with copyrights, because um, you can tell me if I'm wrong on this, but I've always found that copyrights are pretty DIYable, especially yes. if you're getting in the routine of like copywriting or collections of work. 
Yes. Okay, so you're correct. They're much less expensive than trademarks, even just from a filing fee perspective. So uh, big picture, the Copyright Office, so it's actually a part of the Library of Congress, just sort of fun fact, mm -hmm. but you um, find them at copyright.gov and they have a bunch of different forms. So you, you, you file an application to protect your work based on what kind of work it is. So if it's a literary work, which would be anything that's like written in prose, like your book or blogs, or a visual work of the visual arts, which would be something like the photographs, or it could be a musical composition. So they have forms for kind of the different categories of the type of thing. That's step one. So you have to pick the right form. Then you can only include what they call one work per application. But that work could be a collection or it could be what we call a compilation. Like a compilation would be like a calendar where you have like 12 people's, you know, um, photographs from 12 different people. And so the compilation is like the calendar and the way that it's all organized, but the individual pictures are owned by different people or like a collection of essays, you know, something like that. That would be like you compile a bunch of other people's stuff. So whoever did the compiling doesn't really own the individual pieces, just the selection and arrangement of the compilation. As for collections, if you have a bunch of photographs, you can protect them all as part of a collection of works, depending on whether they've been published or whether they've been unpublished. So there's some nuances there, but you don't have to file like one application per copyright. So you can dump like 750 of them at one time. What's important though, is when you go to enforce, you just want to make sure that whatever, you just want to make sure that you've actually included whatever that thing is that you're trying to enforce in one of those. So bottom line, you can do a single work, you can do a collection or you can do a compilation. There's some rules but it's way easier than it used to be to do a lot at once. They, they changed those rules about a year ago. As for doing it yourself, um, yeah, I mean, there's an electronic filing process. And I would say, if you understand basically who created it and who owns the legal rights. So like if a graphic design, like if a photographer created, like a wedding photographer takes the pictures that the wedding photographer is the author because they actually took the pictures right and their contract is going to say whether or not the wedding photographer keeps the copyright or whether the wedding photographer gives the copyright to the wedding couple so it's it's sort of like know who the author is and know who the owner is when you have that um then it's about 65 bucks in a filing fee and the rest of it's pretty simple i say to my clients here let me show you how to do the first one I'll actually set their account up inside the copyright office and then they can do it themselves from there. Yeah, I think this is really good information because I'm thinking, especially if I'm a seasoned, like a seasoned photographer who's yeah. well-respected and publishes photographs and I maybe do 10 or 20 weddings a year, it's worth just like adding into your workflow, copywriting your photographs. Um, also note for anyone who might be listening that's not totally aware of this, Kelly, you, you probably know this, but I know you don't work with as many photographers as I do, that um, vast majority of the industry, the standard is the photographer always retains the copyright. The mm -hmm. only time they ever sell it is really like 
for celebrities and they charge a pretty, <laughs> pretty penny for that. Um, so last question on this topic, let's assume that you are a wedding photographer and you have like wedding A, wedding B and wedding C and you have a hundred photographs for each. Can you put all of those as one in one collection in an application or is each wedding its own collection? According yeah, to it's it? really going to be driven more of when you actually publish the works. So publishing means you make it available to the public. So okay. once you put them online and make them available, then you've published it. So whether or not the collection is going to be driven by the publication status, not the timing. Now, okay, got it. the timing of when you file based on when you published, right? So if we were talking about this 90 days. So let's say that you did three weddings within 90 days of each other and you publish everything at once, put them all in one application. So it's just really driven, not by timing, but by publication status. So then I'm thinking like for an artist, it has less to do with like medium and composition. It's just publication date again. Yes. And the other kind of tip I tell my content creator clients is just get in the habit of of copywriting your work quarterly and put it through that three-step test. Like, is it value? Does it help you make money? Is it part of what makes you different? And are you going to do something about it? And then you pick those you file them, invest a couple hundred bucks every quarter. You know, it's, it, you know, you may file 10,000 in photographs, but then when, you know, Vogue rips you off, you'll be grateful you did. <laughs> Love it. Okay, I'm not so, saying anything about Vogue or that they did. It just came to mind. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, okay. So let's wrap up. I know that you have like a freebie or a download for people to go check out. Where is that? And what is it? Yes. You can go to kellykeller.com. It's K-E-L-L-E-Y. K-E-L-L-E-R, yes, dot com slash Brayden. So kellykeller.com slash Brayden. And I thought that I would put there a nice little chart about the difference between the types of intellectual property, which is essentially what are they? How do they work? How do you get protection? How long does protection last? Is sort of like the, the bucket. I'm going to do buckets. I'm going to change it into buckets just for you. Love it. So we're going to just have a bucket list, which is like a cheat sheet to help you understand what kind of, what parts of your business are protected by what. Okay. So kellykeller.com forward slash Braden. My name has no Y in it, everyone. B-R-A-D-E-N. And then also go check out the Trademark Girl podcast. And then before we wrap up, I of course have to plug my own freebie as well. You guys have heard me be talking the last month about the Unfuck Your Biz book. If you'd like to get a free chapter of that, you can go to bradendrake.com forward slash book. That's all for this episode, um, but make sure you tune in tomorrow because I'm actually going to be releasing a bonus episode, which will be part two of this conversation with Kelly. So that's all for today. I hope that you have a great Thursday and I will be back in your podcast app tomorrow. Hey there, before you go, I wanted to give a quick thanks. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. If you loved it, I would love for you to take a screenshot of the episode or snap a quick selfie while you are listening. Share it on social and give me a tag. It'll help other kick-ass entrepreneurs like yourself find the show. That's it for today. I'll be back soon with a new episode. Meanwhile, let's roll up our sleeves and unfuck that biz.